This is episode number 499 with Bar Moses, co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Bar Moses is with us on the show today, and we're very lucky to have her. Bar is co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo, a venture capital-backed startup that has grown in headcount by a remarkable 10x over the past couple of years. Monte Carlo specializes in data reliability, making sure that the data pipelines used for decision-making or production models are available 24-7 and that the data are high quality. Over the course of the episode, Barr will detail what data reliability is, including how we can monitor for the good pipelines bad data problem, how reliable data enable the creation of a data mesh that empowers data-driven decision-makers across all of the departments of a company to independently create and analyze data. She talks about how to build a data science team and how to get a data-focused startup off the ground, generating revenue and rapidly scaled up. Today's episode should be of interest to technical folks like data scientists and commercially-oriented folks alike. While Barr is a highly technical expert, we put in extra effort to make sure we broke down software engineering concepts so they could be understood by anyone. And this episode does nevertheless contain a number of gems for business success with data. Okay, you all set for another awesome episode? Let's go. Bar Moses, welcome to the Super Data Science Show. I'm delighted to have you here. Where in the world are you calling in from? Thanks, John. It's awesome to be here. I am in San Francisco, California. Ah, Sunny today. Yeah. I, is that true? We can see in the YouTube version that it's sunny outside, so you've got to be somewhere else. <laughs> That's true. That's true. All fake news. <laughs> um, it looks like a beautiful day in San Francisco. Um, I guess an unusual day where you might not need a sweater. That's right. Very unusual for San Francisco, but we'll take what we can. Nice. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the show. I had been kind of creeping your internet profile for a while. Um, so you you showed up on my radar a number of different ways. I think we've been in each other's LinkedIn network for a while. So kind of just seeing you post things or comment on things. I kind of I'd seen you that way. And then Kate Stroshny. She did a few months ago, she had, she created this LinkedIn post of data voices and there were a couple dozen people on there and you were on there and I was like, oh, Bar Moses again. And so then I went out, I looked at your LinkedIn profile. I was like, fascinating. I wonder if she's a good speaker. So then I went up and I looked up some talks that you'd given, some podcast appearances that you've, that you'd had and you were a 10 out of 10, just an absolutely amazing communicator of technical content and just so interesting um, to hear you speak. So I, yeah, so you were on my radar and then just in one of those serendipitous moments, I don't know what I was doing. I was tweeting about the Super Data Science Show or something and Scott Herleman of the Data Mesh Learning Network uh, commented on one of my tweets, I guess tweeted at me 
and said, uh, you should think about having Bar Moses on your show. And I immediately sent you a message in Twitter and asked if you'd like to be. And you said, yes. And now here you are. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, serendipity. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm indebted to to both uh, Kate and Scott uh, for being amazing voices uh, and data as well. Nice. So Scott is from the Data Mesh Learning Network, as I just mentioned. What the heck bar is a data mesh? <laughs> Great question. It's a million dollar question these days. Um, so let me take a step back and describe a little bit of sort of what's actually causing, what I think is causing data mesh to sort of be a hot topic these days. Um, cool. You know, I think... The world in which obviously the world has changed tremendously in the last year and a half or so, but in the data space, it's really changed a lot in the last five to 10 years. Um, I think five to 10 years ago, we really liked to say that we were data driven, but mm. it sort of stopped at that. We didn't really go beyond sort of claiming that. Um, I think today when people and companies claim that it's a little bit more true, it's actually said in earnest and um, there's actually more behind that to solidify that. Um, but really, if you think about it, five to 10 years ago, very few people were actually doing data science. Um, very few people in companies were actually using data to make decisions or to power products. Um, it was really a world where, honestly, a lot of data was confined, sometimes in finance, sometimes in IT. There was a handful of very small, very small handful of people who were actually using data to make decisions. And they were using that data um, very, not often. So it might be only once a quarter to report to the street. Um, it was based on a limited set of data sources. Um, so th there was, you know, it was, it was obviously core and was important, but it didn't really have the spotlight. Um, now, fast forward to today, the world in which we live in is insanely different than where we were five to 10 years ago. You literally, it's like mind blowing to me. You cannot compare what it's like. First of all, starting with an insane amount of data sources, right? It's not uncommon for companies to use thousands of third party data sources, right? In the past, maybe you just were relying on like Google and maybe Facebook and that's about it. Today, there's so many data sources that companies rely on. Um, there's al also a lot more complexity in terms of the pipelines that we're building and the architecture, right? So in the past, we had one database and we pulled all the data in that and, and that's it. Today, you can have several data warehouses, a data lake, ETL, ELT, reverse ETL, BI, machine learning, right? There's so, like, name it and you have that. So data is really spread everywhere and has become distributed. Um, and then maybe the third sort of big thing that I'm seeing that's happening is um, the rise of lots of more people that are working with data. Um, so in the past, you really only had maybe, um, you know, a financial analyst or a data entry person, maybe only one or two sort of a handful of roles that were dealing with data. But today you have machine learning engineers and data scientists and um, data engineers and analytics engineers and analytics and um, you know, executives that are using data, really anyone in the organization is actually either a producer or a consumer or both for data, which is a mm -hmm. tremendous change from, from where we've been. Um, mm -hmm. And so with these sort of three main themes really being the driving force behind everything that's happening in the last uh, decade or so, there's, there's this new need at the center of all that there's a need to define how do we actually work with data in this organization? What, is, what do all these changes mean for us? Whatever worked before is not going to cut it today anymore. We need to rethink. And so I think that's really what's brought the data mesh to be front and center. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I'll explain the data mesh. So the data mesh um, is originated based on a concept from software engineering that's been adopted in the data space. 
So in software engineering, there's a, a movement that has been, again, in the last couple of decades or so, where we've moved from monolith to microservices architecture. And with that, there's a lot of technologies and processes and people changes that have made in order to support that. Now what, we're actually, what does that even mean? What, what's the difference between a, model, a monolith and the microservices architecture? Great question. So fundamentally, it's a difference between managing something in a very centralized fashion versus a decentralized fashion. Um, and so I'll give you a very concrete example when it comes to data. Um, oftentimes, what we see in organizations that are struggling uh, with a centralized uh, model is where you have um, a, a group of people, maybe it will be called the data platform or the infrastructure team or can be whatever name, um, and all requests related to data are coming to that particular team. And so if you want a new report, if you want to use data, if you have a question about you know, um, what customers are more important than others, what feature has been most successful uh, to date, uh, what customers are about to churn, any really question that you have about the data and about your business, you mm -hmm. have to go through the centralized team. And so think about this team. Uh, they're, you know, they have this insane backlog of requests and questions. And they might be like, well, see you in a year from now when we actually have time to get to your request, right? Like get in line, take a number. Um, and that really doesn't allow um, for an effective use of data, right? Um, when there's sort of this, this gatekeeper. And that's when we mm -hmm. see companies really ask themselves, okay, there has to be a better way, right? Uh -huh. um, and so <clears throat> what the data mesh sort of at prin principle is, um, creating a standard um, uh, sort of centralized best practice or sort of centralized um, organization that can define standards and norms for what does strong data management actually mean, but then allowing for distributed ownership of data in domain-specific organizations. So allowing for marketing specifically to own data that's related to marketing that has questions about for campaigns that they're running in particular. Those are very different than the questions that the product team may be asking or that the finance team may be asking. Um, and so the idea of actually breaking down the ability between having the centralized sort of uh, standards and um, in conjunction with that, the ability to do self-serve and domain-specific ownership actually sort of unblocks that um, congestion that we had um, and allows teams to move faster. Nice. You may already have heard of Data Science Go, which is the conference run in California by Super Data Science. And you may also have heard of Data Science Go Virtual, the online conference we run several times per year. In order to help the Super Data Science community stay connected throughout the year, from wherever you happen to be on this wacky giant rock called planet Earth, we've now started running these virtual events every single month. You can find them at datasciencego.com slash connect. They're absolutely free. You can sign up at any time. And then once a month, we run an event where you will get to hear from a speaker, engage in a panel discussion, or an industry expert Q&A session. And critically, there are also speed networking sessions where you can meet like-minded data scientists from around the globe. This is a great way to stay up to date with industry trends, hear the latest from amazing speakers, meet peers, exchange details, and stay in touch with the community. So once again, these events run monthly. You can sign up at datasciencego.com slash connect. I'd love to connect with you there. I think I now understand what data meshes are. So historically, we've had these monolithic architectures in software development, including in 
data related processes where you have this central repository of data, probably maybe a bunch of SQL databases or something that only the data science team or the data analytics team really has access to querying. Um, but we're moving more and more to this distributed um, scenario where, as you've mentioned, with lots of people across organizations needing access to data in real time and being able to do at least some simple data polls, but maybe even some, some complex modeling. You could have people on your marketing team or on your HR team who specialize in getting these data out and actually doing some sophisticated modeling. You don't need, it doesn't need to happen on some central data science team. So with a data mesh, you still need, it sounds like you still want to have across the company, not a central team or the central dependency, but you want to have a centrally defined standard. Right, okay. But, uh, but then anybody in the organization can plug in uh, can I guess create data, uh, store data, and access data um, from this uh, this this data standard? Yeah, I think the idea is that right now it's a little bit of a wild west, and so to create some sort of you know, um, I, I think what we're seeing is is definitely sort of the creation of this standard standard and, and norms, and that's typically sort of um, uh, federated by sort of a, a centralized group. And then there's domain-specific owners for each of those areas that you mentioned. And to your point, you're absolutely right. Like You could actually have pretty sophisticated models in other areas, such as marketing and HR, um, that are not in the, the sort of standard centralized data, data organization. Um, and you might ask yourself, like, what are some of the challenges with implementing something like this? Um, probably the biggest challenge that we actually see is sort of a change management challenge, actually. Um, so figuring out how do you structure the team, who should be on which team, who should own what, um, what, what is um, mandated, if you will, as sort of a standard and what is not, um, what are some of the, the technologies that you use, um, you know, in a central fashion and what do you actually enable um, to the domain specific owners um, that's probably the biggest question or sort of the biggest sort of challenge that we see folks run into. Um, and the first thing within that and the first sort of, um, kind of friction that comes in is that comes up is, um, in this model, you are actually allowing, um, different groups of people to own, um, to own specific parts of the data. But in doing so, you also need to make sure that they can answer some fundamental questions about the data. Like, for example, which data should I be using? Um, which table is the right table to use? Uh, when was this table actually updated? Is it, is it fresh? Can I actually use this? Um, what does this data mean? Um, who's using this data? Has, the data that, has this data been used in the past or not? Um, and so actually allowing folks to have access to data, but not letting them be able to self-serve on those questions poses a really big challenge. And so that's kind of how we think about um, self-serve data reliability to enable um, the implementation of the data mesh. Okay. Okay. So you just, you just used a term that I really want to dig into there. You said self-serve data reliability. So it, it's clear that that is a critical concept to having a data mesh work. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I just threw a lot of buzzwords at you. So let me unpack that a little bit. 
Um, data reliability is a concept that, again, uh, um, draws on a concept from software engineering. Um, so in software engineering and, and DevOps in particular, there's a concept of making sure that your applications and your infrastructure are reliable, which mm. today seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, of course. Exactly. Mm. Right? Like something that's like super obvious to us, right? Um, but 10 years ago, not as much. Um, today, it does seem a little bit crazy to have a en software engineering team that doesn't think about reliability, doesn't have something like, you know, um, Datadog or um, Grafana um, or really any solution to actually like monitor the reliability and the uptime of infrastructure and applications, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, and that, you know, is, is, is really emerging a very important uh, part of our ability to deliver um, software solutions that or products that are, can be, that are scalable and reliable and secure. Um, Got however, it. So uh, just to say something back to you to make sure that I understand this. So data reliability is basically, it's, an, it's analogous to a software service uptime. So in the same way that if you have a website, if you run facebook.com, you need to have Facebook up all of the time. And so you have all these tools in place, like you mentioned Datadog, um, in place to make sure that um, you have redundancy. And if one thing goes down, something else can come up and your site is still up. So it sounds like data reliability is, I imagine, this idea that if you have this distributed data organization and everybody needs access to data, they're making decisions based on data, those data pipelines need to be up all the time. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's exactly right. right. The stakes are higher now. You right. cannot have data downtime anymore. Um, in the past, when less people were using data, there was less data going around and it wasn't as mission critical. Like it wasn't actually like products weren't really relying on it. Um, you know, in that world, it was fine that data was down and no one noticed. Um, and it was fine that data was wrong, you know, every once in a while. And on top right. of that, the you also... Right, too. Exactly. Yeah. So data has to be right. And I'll add another complication to that. In the past, it was really or relatively easy to manually make sure that it was right. I could just right. stare at the numbers for a long enough time and look at where the data came from and I could tell you whether it's accurate or not. So, you know, if I'm looking at our revenue numbers um, or the number of visitors on our website, I should have a pretty strong understanding of that because I'm only looking at a small handful of metrics and I'm looking at them regularly and, you mm. know, I report on them once a quarter. So I have a lot of time to think about whether that number is right. Mm -hmm. um, this one cell in this spreadsheet is wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, when you get like a model from someone, you're like, I don't understand anything from all of these formulas. I'm going to go one by one and check it. You maybe you could do that <laughs> manually once, oh, right? Yeah. Terrible, right? Um, yeah, there's, so there's too, like you're saying, there's too many data sources there and they're coming from, you know, some of them are coming from third party vendors. Some of them are coming from other people in the organization. And so you, you can't, it, in a modern organization, increasingly, you can't possibly keep an eye on every single data source manually. Um, so yeah, I totally see the need here. It's sort of mind-blowing, right? Um, that, that uh, you know, we've, we've come such a long way. Um, and so, yeah, the, the question is, sort of as an analogy, sort of call this kind of like data downtime. How do you minimize data downtime in an organization 
in order to increase trust in the data. Um, so we actually see organizations start measuring things like time to detection of data incidents. How quickly mm-hmm. did you identify that's, that your data was wrong? Um, oftentimes we see companies go from months to minutes in time to detection, which is huge when that, when that data is actually, like I'll give you an example, let's say um, it's a data set that you know, your marketing team is running a campaign for in Facebook, let's just use that example. If you're targeting the wrong people and you find out about that months later, that's a big deal. Your company has lost a lot of money. Um, if you are using data to price something, let's say you're selling a marketplace, um, let's say you're selling homes or selling jeans or selling shoes. If you're underpricing or overpricing for a long period of time, you're losing a lot of money and not knowing about that can be disastrous. And the reality is that's happening today already because we've already like, you know, open the floodgates, let everyone use data. But now we're like, oh, wait. But maybe sometimes the data is wrong. We need to make sure that's actually accurate. Nice. So somehow, I suspect, based on things I've read about you and your company online, that your company, Monte Carlo, can somehow help with all of these data uptime challenges. Yeah, I mean, we're really sort of focused on helping kind of the community sort of figure out. Uh, so what, what, what do we, how do, okay, maybe the question is, how do we actually solve data reliability, right? Or what's the right way to approach that? Um, and so with the thinking that um, it's sort of the first step to actually being able to use data um, in your company. Um, and so I think the solution, again, draws on what we've seen in software engineering. Um, and I like to mention that because I think there's something really nice about the fact that we don't have to completely reinvent the wheel in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, the problem of data being wrong and data quality has been around for decades, right? It's sort of the old age problem in data. Nothing is new there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but all of these changes actually introduce an ability to solve this problem in a totally new way that hasn't been um that was not was not possible until today, um, and that is you know the standardization of cloud solutions, um, uh, the rise of solutions like Snowflake and Databricks um, and GCP uh, and Looker and Tableau and so many others um, that you know are really sort of um, uh, allowing data teams to get faster and better um, in how they're using data and how they're processing data. Um, and so the question is, how do we make sure that the data that's running in all of those systems is actually accurate? Um, mm-hmm. And the solution is, again, as I mentioned, is sort of as a concept from software engineering, how do you actually solve that in software engineering? Well, what you do is you look at certain metrics or you look at um, the, outc- the sort of the outcome of the system to understand the health of it, right? Um, so you sort of call this observability, right? Meaning trying mm-hmm. to understand... Um, you know, what are some indicators of a system that can tell us whether it's healthy or not? Um, so we, we actually call this um, the good pipelines, bad data problem. What do I mean by that? I mean, you've invested so much in setting up the best data warehouse, the best data lake, the best pipeline. You have real-time data, the best machine learning models. Everything is, you know, top-notch, but the data that's powering all of that is actually inaccurate. Right. Um, and so one of the ideas is that in order to solve that, what if we looked at specific metrics that helped us understand whether the data is accurate or not? Um, and so we actually spoke to hundreds of data organizations and asked them, 
how do you make, how do you solve this problem? How do you solve the good pipelines, bad data problem? What do you do? What do you look at in order to understand whether data is accurate or not? Um, and b- based on that, we actually took all that good stuff and consolidate that into sort of five core pillars of data observability. Those are freshness, volume, schema, distribution, and lineage. Um, and we believe that if you can automatically um, uh, collect information, monitor those five pillars, you can actually have a holistic, unified view of the health of your data. Um, and so to really define kind of like top-notch, best-in-class data reliability means having some, some way to really define what those five pillars are for your organization. Cool. That makes a lot of sense to me. Can you reel off those five pillars to me one more time? Yeah, of course. Um, the first pillar is freshness, which yeah. is related to everything about the timeliness of your data. You know, has the data arrived on time? You, maybe you expect it to be, at, you know, at 6 a.m. and it arrived at 6.50. And maybe that's a big problem because someone downstream is using it at 6.15. Um, you need to know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second pillar is volume. Um, so, you know, number of rows is a sort of good basic example. Maybe you've been getting 20 rows every day and suddenly you're getting 20 million rows. That probably indicates something is wrong. Um, the third is distribution. Um, and distribution really speaks uh, to the values themselves. Uh, so it could be anywhere like percentage null values or if you have a particular field that, you know, you typically track credit card numbers and suddenly you have letters there. Probably something is wrong. Um, the fourth is schema. Uh, so schema changes, you know, um, sort of around the structure of data. If a table is added, removed, if a field's changed, field type has changed. Um, and then the fifth is lineage. Uh, so lineage, when I'm, when I say lineage, I actually mean lineage at the data level, not at the job level. Um, so at table level or field level lineage. Um, and overlaying that along with the ability to say what, you know, something broke here in this table. And here are all the dependencies on that. Um, here are all the reports that are being used. And by the way, they're being used by your marketing team for that campaign daily. You better fix that problem that you have in this table. Um, maybe there's another table that has a big problem and there's nothing downstream that relies on it. So who cares? That's right. not a real problem. Cool. Well, not only did you reel them off for me, but you gave me illustrative, clear examples. So that was beautiful. I'm sure the audience appreciates that. So it sounds like if we're going to... Um, have great data reliability, we're going to have a data mesh. It sounds like philosophically, we might have to make a lot of changes to our organization to make the most of that. So how do we build a data team or an organization to handle this new world? Such a great question. Um, the most common problem that we see is actually this like um, finger pointing or blame game uh, where every team is really sort of blaming a team either upstream or downstream of them for, for the data problems. So, you know, some of the things that some of the issues that we do see, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, let's say there's sort of software, there's like an engineering, excuse me, an engineering team. Um, there's a data engineering team that, or there's an engineering team that's sort of responsible for, you know, um, uh, specific product. And then there is a data engineering team that's building the pipelines. Um, to ingest that data and transform the data from that. And then there is a data analyst or data analytics team that's in, you know, creating specific reports that, um, say, marketing and HR team is using. Um, we oftentimes see, you know, in this, like, simplified view, 
um, you know, analyst team sort of pinging the data engineering team and saying, why is the data wrong? Why is it coming late? What's going on? And then the data engineering team will be pinging the software and the engineering team and saying, what's going on? Why is the data late? You know, um, we can't figure out the root cause of this. And then there's like weird sort of like dynamics and friction. And then the other way around can happen. Like software, the engineering team can say something like, you know, the jobs all ran perfectly well. Everything is fine. Right. We don't know what the problem is, right? Um, and so there's less, there's less dynamic where it's actually really hard to untangle things. Um, and so when you think about sort of deem dynamics, the first sort of or one of the, the, there's a few sort of tools that I think are really helpful to facilitate that. And one is to actually think about SLAs and SLOs regarding your data, um, which are essentially ways. All right. So we've got SLAs, SLOs. What are those, Bar? Service level agreements and yep. service level operations. Um, and basically the idea is um, there are contracts that allow us, allow teams to set expectations around, let's say, let's take freshness as an example, around when, when do I expect sort of data to come in, um, right? At what time? Um, and what percentage of the time should that be happening? Um, so it's sort of the common, you know, sort of notion of like having five nines of availability in software engineering, right? Um, right. Basically the equivalent of that in data. So the five nines being like 99.999% uptime. And then um, I also, I just want to quickly talk about that word contract. So you talk about having these service level contracts to say guarantee some level of freshness of the data. This doesn't mean that uh, someone on the software engineering team literally signs a contract for the data science team, which is how I, you know, I typically think about contracts, but it's just, it's an agreement internally, uh, not literally like a signed document, but just, yeah, just this idea that, you know, I agree that our team's going to do this. We'll provide you this data with this level of freshness. Um, and then so you can build your processes based on that. Yes. It's a, it's a badge of honor that you're doing this. But, uh, <laughs> no, but, but, but actually, it is also helpful to, to document that, right? So while, you know, you might not be signing your name, uh, if you do, right. you know, have, there are solutions to, and Monte Carlo is one of them, um, uh, to actually document these and to help automate when they don't happen so that you can actually enforce those. Um, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yep. And then the other thing on team organization that we see that's, I think, pretty cool is sort of the rise of new and important roles. Um, so, for example, the role of the data product manager. Um, so the thinking mm -hmm. of the product manager that's actually dedicated to, um, you know, thinking of how, thinking of how to build uh, data products. And that's a pretty new concept as well, um, thinking of data as a product. Yeah, that's actually, that's a new one to me. And it makes perfect sense. Like, now I know exactly what you mean. And I can see the value of it, but I've never heard somebody put those three words together before. <laughs> cool. Data project managers. Um, wait, project manager, product manager? Product. product. Data as a product. Data product yep. manager. Yeah. Um, glad I asked. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's the one that makes even more sense. You can imagine a data project manager, but data product manager... Yes, yes. We can add another one if you want, John. <laughs> uh, I can see more demand for this data product manager. Nice. Okay, so we've understood now about data meshes. We've understood about data reliability. We know about the challenges in building data meshes, including these kind of philosophical ideas around how to build a data team and having... <laughs> specialized roles like data product managers involved. So very interesting and loving understanding how Monte Carlo fits in with all of that. 
So um, I'd love to ask you now some questions that have actually come from um, audience members about your, uh, you know, about your background, about your company, and they, they tie in to everything that we've already covered. So the first one is from Ciro, Ciro Gomez Parsian, who is a Microsoft Analytics and Cloud Architect at Vuenext. And Ciro is curious about how your intelligence background uh, has influenced your career since. So uh, listeners probably don't know, but you have a storied career, uh, both in, uh, in the private world, in technology, uh, and in consulting as well. But prior to that, you started uh, in the Israeli Air Force as a commander, and you were involved in, even back then, analyzing intelligence data. So it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds to me like there's kind of this, this arc, there's been this, this analysis uh, and, and quantities and mathematics and computer science, I guess, throughout most of your life. But I don't know why I'm saying all this. Why don't you just fill it in for us? <laughs> <laughs> Way better when you say it. Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in Israel, actually on, um, uh, in the Weizmann Institute of Science. So I was, my dad is a uh, professor of physics. So I spent a lot of time in his lab um, uh, trying to blow up things. Um, <laughs> um, my mom is a meditation teacher. So I, I also spent a lot of time meditating, uh, maybe not as much as I should have. Um, uh, <laughs> That's probably always true. I think yes. everyone always feels like that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, eat your veggies and meditate is what, what I should be doing. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, in, in Israel was, was drafted to, to the Israeli air force. Um, I was a commander of a, of a data unit, um, spent a long time, uh, doing, you know, data analysis, obviously very, very different than what we're doing today, right? This was a long time ago and different technologies and, and honestly, also very different use case. Um, maybe the, you know, there's certainly a lot of learnings from that time uh, that have influenced my work today. Um, you know, I think sort of being uh, at that young age, working on such sensitive material, uh, you develop sort of a responsibility, um, mm. Um, and a strong understanding of sort of how important, you know, data is actually uh, to just some decisions that can actually impact human life, right? Um, and so in those cases, I think developing that sense of responsibility also drives you to come up with sort of strong, strong solutions to things like data accuracy. Um, you know, I think this is sort yeah. of a um, kind of a term that I heard later in my life uh, called zero defect. Um which is, you know, if your if your data or if your if your products can be zero defect, meaning if you can have, you know, as little sort of mistakes in them as possible, um, that's something that actually like we thought about way back then in the early days, uh, and that really ties to what we're trying to do today, where it's really hard harder to become zero defect, and yet the decisions that we're making every day um, are based on on data that may actually be accurate, may, may be inaccurate, and that's a scary proposition. Super interesting. I don't know what I was expecting is the answer, but that was a wonderful one. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, so then after that, you studied uh, mathematics and computer science at Stanford, and you worked as a management consultant at Bain, and then you held a number of uh, senior roles in organizations, um, no doubt involved in data and analytics and using those data and analytics for commercial purposes within the organization. Um, so, you know, feel free to fill, fill us in on any 
uh, major things from that <laughs> giant period of your life. Uh, distill it down to one really great point. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to, what I'm, the, the place that I'm trying to get to is to understand what led you to um, founding your own company, to founding Monte Carlo and being the CEO of that company. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, I think um, prior to prior to, to Monte Carlo, I, I was at a company called Gainside, which created the customer success category. Um, and so I learned a few very important things. Um, one, I learned about um, the importance. So one of the most important things that we did in creating the category was actually to um, make it quantitative and solidify what customer success means based on data. Um, so in the past, um, customer success was something that was really often subjective. Um, and, you know, I would sort of buy your software because you bought my software and maybe I'm using it, maybe I'm not. Um, and in today's world, it's that you, you are earning your customer's business every day. Um, and in order to do that well, you actually need to use data about your customer. Then you need to understand, are they using your product? Or are they not? Are they happy with it? How are they mm -hmm. using your product? Um, and so I was always sort of fascinated with how data can you know, improve our lives, improve business outcomes. Um, and I'm, you know, I just feel very fortunate to, to, to be during this time where there's such advances in data in general. Um, and I think the, you know, some of the things that, that led me to start th this company is actually at Gainsight, I noticed sort of in working with hundreds of companies is that the biggest thing that folks sort of trip over and, and fell, including myself, was the ability to trust the data. Um, so I remember we were trying to become very data-driven as an organization, and we couldn't rely on the numbers that we were looking at. Like I was looking at a report, and I was like, I don't even know if this is right or not. And if it's not right or wrong, if it's not right, then I might as well just go with my best guess. And in that case, like, why are we even collecting this data to begin with? Um, and I remember my team spending so much time sort of asking these questions too. And I was like, why is this so hard? This should be easy. And if we want to become data-driven, it's not going to get easier. Um, and so, you know, I think sort of wanting to really solve that, solve that pain. And, you know, I, I ended up sort of speaking with lots of other companies outside of my work after, after Gainsight actually to understand, you know, how are they addressing this? What are the main sort of root causes for why data goes down? Um, and all these different questions that I really wanted to make sure, like, you know, am I the only one who's struggling with this? You know, when you start a company, you don't really know if you're solving something that someone else will care about. Right. Um, right. And so I want I was curious, like, am I, am I solving something that only I care about or other people do? And I was just thrilled to learn that it's something that lots of people care about and that it's unsolved. And so, you know, I just couldn't imagine a world where this, there wouldn't be a solution to this. I was like, we're not going to become data driven if we don't solve this. So we better go solve this. <laughs> cool. Uh, so what's up with the name? What's up with the name Monte Carlo? When I think of Monte Carlo, I think of like casinos and this is kind of the opposite. You're like, there's, you're trying to reduce risk. You're trying to increase data accuracy. It's like, you don't, you don't want to be taking any chances with your data. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so when we started the company, uh, we were thinking about the name. Um, and, you know, we, um, we actually didn't have a lot of time to decide. Uh, because we had, <laughs> quite frankly, we had customers who wanted us to sign papers quickly and, and start working with them. And so, you know, I opened my uh, my stats book and was searching for names. Um, Markov chain Monte Carlo. Exactly. That's right. So, you know, Markov chain was a, a little bit too much for my taste. Um, <laughs> it, it was a candidate, but it couldn't make it work. 
Um, and so that's where we landed. And, um, and also uh, my co-founder, Lior, is a big fan of uh, Formula One. So um, you'll often see him with a Formula One hat. Uh, so we just felt like it's uh, right. And we sort of figured in good old startup fashion that we'll solve it later if it becomes a problem. Um, so <laughs> Nice. That sounds great. That's a really good and really honest explanation. You'd think that like, you know, over the years, you'd come up with like a really great story. Really? No, just honestly, we was just <laughs> looking for one really quickly. Uh, great. Well, it, it makes, you know, it's memorable to me. I think it's a really great um, company name. So, all right. So you start the company, you quickly realize that, yes, there are other people out there who need this problem to be solved. How did you get some to pay? And specifically, so Ramesh Vakalagata, who's a senior research fellow at the Center for DNA Fingerprinting and Diagnostics, has asked this question of you. He wants to know how you landed your first few clients. Great question. And I'll give you the honest answer here as well. Um, so when we started the company, you know, one of the things that um, can be a little bit confusing or misleading as a founder is uh, to, you know, you, know, you want to make sure that you're working on a problem that people actually care about and they're not just being nice to you. And oftentimes if you ask people, hey, what do you think about my startup idea? You know, if I come up to you, John, I'll be like, hey, sure. I'm working on this new idea. What do you think? You might be like, oh, my God, Bar, like, that's such a great idea. I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, like just because you want to be nice to me. It's sort of human nature. Right. Um, but then when the time comes, and you're like, OK, well, you pay for this. Are you actually going to pay? You're like, oh, so sorry. I have 10 other things that are more important. Right. Yeah. My, my favorite answer in those kinds of situations is like, I can see why your solution is great, but not <laughs> exactly. for me. That's right. <laughs> There's someone else out there who this is perfect for. That's right. This is awesome. I love it. Just for my neighbor there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's right. Um, and so when you, when you start a company, I was sort of faced with how do I find folks? How do I actually validate that? Right? I can't work with anyone who will give me sort of the this is a great solution. I need to find out whether people actually care about this. And so I actually cold called people. And I was like, is this a problem that you care about? And suppose I had this solution? Would you want to use it? Um, so people that I'd never spoke to, and that was the bar for whether this is an important enough problem. I was like, if people care enough about this pain point that they will talk to someone like me um, with no company at the time, no brand, nothing behind me, this, if this is important enough to them, they will engage. Um, and indeed, that's what happened. Uh, the first 10 customers that we had, um, we did not know them before. We had wow. no relationship with them. Um, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the way that we did that was by making sure that this is a really important pain point to them putting a product in their hands really quickly. Um, so, you know, we didn't develop product in the dark for years. We actually like put something in the hands of customers very, very fast, like within weeks. Um, and then made sure that that thing actually solved a real problem for them. And in that case, actually, like they wanted to pay us on, to be perfectly honest. I was shocked when they were wow. like, Hey, you know, we want to pay for this. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're <laughs> like, yeah, like this is like a great product and, and we should be paying for it. Um, and that was a sign too, right? I was like, if someone wants to pay, this means that it's important enough. That sounds really great. And it reminds me of the kinds of philosophies that you read about in a book like Lean Startup. Um, yeah, if that, you know, you, you find people who are, you know, on the cutting edge, who are looking for something new to solve a new problem. Um, and you get it into their hands quickly and you get feedback quickly and you iterate from there, you don't worry about making the perfect product. 
you just get them something. That's absolutely cool. right. Um, and I read at the time various books and um, White Combinator has a, has a great blog with sort of things to do early on, unscalable things to do, which has been very helpful for me. Um, yeah, there's a variety of resources that, that are incredibly helpful uh, for early stage. I would say the other sort of thing that's really valuable is actually speaking to other founders um, uh, who are, you know, sort of a few years ahead of you. They typically have some great advice. Nice. Yeah, that is great guidance and some great resources, which we'll have in the show notes. Um, so another audience question, this one's from a machine learning engineer named Bernard, um, who's a repeat uh, question asker here on the Super Data Science Show. I recognize his name. <laughs> and uh, Bernard is curious what the typical workday is like in a startup like yours. I guess it's interesting for him, maybe what your workday is like, but I think also more generally, I'd love to know what it's like for a data scientist or a software developer in a company at kind of your stage solving your kind of problem. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I will say that at this stage, probably no two days are alike. Um, so every day is really sort of different and changes. Um, and also the company changes a lot. So, you know, I sort of, um, I was I sort of encouraged that the company to think through, um, you know, the rate that we're growing the company needs to be way or, or the company sort of is growing intensely every week and every month. Like, you know, we've basically 10 X the number of people that we had in the last year in the company. Um, wow. And that means that each and one of every us has to also get better at our job every week, every quarter, every month. Um, and so, you know, the type of things that I, that my job was when it was just me is very different than when we were like few people and few tens and few hundreds, right. It'll be, it'll be very different. Um, and so one of the things that I talk a lot about my, my team is um, rewriting your own job description. Um, and sometimes after, you know, two weeks or three months or six months or a year, you're suddenly in a, in a place where the company needs something different from you. And so you actually need to write a new job description for yourself. Um, and so I think maybe sort of the constant theme and what does a day to day like is a lot of adaptability to change. Um, mm -hmm. recognizing that you and the company and the landscape changes a lot. Um, that's sort of the big core thing. Um, there's two additional ones that I'm, I'll mention. Um, the second is um, around the speed of change. Um, so, so there's a value that we, um, that we really reference a lot at Monte Carlo, which is measure in minutes, um, meaning sort of our, you know, at, at, at our, our stage, our level of impact is not kind of, years or months, it's actually minutes. Um, and so we need to be thoughtful about how do we make every minute count? Um, and the way to make every minute count is by making a customer impact really quickly, which is the third part. Uh, so we are extremely um, customer focused. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact, you know, that I kind of like grew up in the customer success industry, if you will. Um, and so I really think that fundamentally, the most important thing that data organizations in particular, data scientists specifically, but also companies in general need to really focus on is being extremely customer driven. So for everything that we're doing, um, how is this impacting your customers today? Uh, and so if you're a data scientist at Monte Carlo or a software engineer, or if you're me, you're all doing the same thing, which is focusing on making our customers as happy as possible. Uh, we might be coding, we might be uh, speaking to customers, we might be writing blogs, we might be doing a bunch of other stuff, but whatever it is, uh, it ultimately all has to point towards making our customers extremely happy. That is everyone's job description, the first bullet line now and forever. 
beautiful answer bar. Uh, and in the spirit of measuring in minutes and knowing that you have a hard stop coming up in a few of them uh, and need to jump off and get to another meeting and probably make a customer very happy, make it some big impact <laughs> for them. Um, uh, I have one last question here, which um, it's from Svetlana Hansen. And she she's curious about how you address biases in data. And so I assume she's asking about kind of unwanted biases. Um, so probably, you know, biases against particular sociodemographic groups, for example. Um, and so uh, we talked about this a little bit before the show. It sounds like in production, there isn't uh, something in Monte Carlo that's a solution in that space, but it's something that you're uh, curious about and maybe have future products in the works for. Yeah, certainly. I think this is one of the top most important and most interesting uh, problem for us to solve in, in data and, you know, has has impact in what Monte Carlo does, but also everywhere else, right? Um, uh, in, in politics, in, um, you know, pandemics, uh, you name it, right? Data is now driving all of that. And so our ability to make decisions and, and you know, think about bias uh, is incredibly important. Um, I will say that there's a book that um, Daniel Kahneman uh, just released uh, recently called Noise, um, which actually addresses or talks a little bit about um, noise and bias. Um, that actually, I just started reading it, um, but it seems great and I highly recommend it. Uh, I think it fundamentally speaks to how, um, surprisingly, how often we make wrong decisions based on wrong data due to noise and bias and how way more prevalent it is um, and discusses some of the aspects of that and some some surprising uh, new learnings that that he found. I haven't read Noise yet, but I read Daniel Kahneman's. Um, I say I say Kahneman. You say Kahneman. You're probably right because he's Israeli, isn't he? Uh, he is, I think, formerly is Israeli, but I'm actually not sure what the exact pronunciation <laughs> is. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, but um, I I've read. Oh my goodness, how am I... Uh, thinking fast and slow. Thinking fast and slow. Yeah, exactly. I was stuck there in my system one and needing my system <laughs> two to really exactly. kick in there. Um, where are you, system two? I need you. Um, system two to the rescue. Yeah, exactly. Well, in that case, you were to the rescue. Um, so I absolutely love that book, Thinking Fast and Slow. It impacts how I act and how I try to think every day. And um, it's been such an important book in my life. So I'm not surprised to hear the noise is also great. And I can't wait to check that out. So Bar, I always end the show with a book recommendation and you just segued right into it. So uh, we save you a couple of minutes right there. It's been so awesome having you on the show. I learned a ton in this episode and I'm sure audience members did too. If they want to follow you and learn more, what should they do? You can check out our blog, MonteCarloData.com. Um, we write pretty regularly about these topics and others, um, data mesh, data reliability, how to build a data team, what does a data product manager means, all those topics, stuff that we write a lot about. Um, you're also welcome to reach out uh, to me on LinkedIn, Bar Moses, if you'd like to connect directly. Uh, super happy to chat about this stuff. Um, it's one of the things that I'm most passionate about. Nice. All right. Thank you so much, Bar. Uh, it's been wonderful having you on the show and maybe we'll have you on again sometime soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me.
Barr is such a brilliant expert on data science and in particular on successfully building a data-focused startup. And Barr manages to effortlessly and clearly convey technical content in such a cool, smooth way. I really admire her style. In today's episode, Barr filled us in on how data meshes involve the central definition of a company-wide data standard that liberates anyone across the organization to create, store, and analyze data. She talked about monolithic versus distributed microservice-based software architectures, how data reliability is analogous to software service uptime, what a data product manager is, how five categories of data metrics enable us to solve the good pipelines bad data problem, specifically freshness, volume, distribution, schema, and lineage. And Barr talked about how feedback via cold calls and getting products into customers' hands within weeks can greatly accelerate a startup's early success. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Barr's LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 499. That's superdatascience.com slash 499. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel, where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on the episode directly, please do feel welcome to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. All right, thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another stellar episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.